Hello, I'm Michael McMullen. This is the World Snooker Tour podcast, and I'm joined this week by someone who is just about to celebrate a massive anniversary, 40 years since he became the first player ever to make a 147 at the Crucible. It is Canada's Cliff Thorburn. Cliff, thanks for joining us. Hey, Michael. Good morning. It's often been talked about that your founding in the game, your foundation, as it were, was on the hustling scene back in North America. How true is that, and how much of a part was that in your early story? Well, I wasn't really a hustler. I wasn't. I wasn't very good at it. I, <laughs> I couldn't just, uh, you know, press the button off and on, and uh, you know, like missed on purpose, and then, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, become this uh, player that never misses a ball. But uh, I just mainly a gambler. I'd, I'd uh, uh, eventually want to end up playing the best player in the town, and uh, and uh, invariably I did, um, and. Um, uh, not that I was holding back. I I would give them more of a spot or a start as we went along, and I was you know I I I did okay. I I lived in San Francisco for a year. Uh, I'm from the West Coast, uh, Victoria, BC, and uh, uh, there were uh, a few good players there. Ended up going down to San Francisco hustling with guys like Philippine Jean and uh, Nick DeGreet, uh, uh, a Greek, uh, Hippie Dave, Joe Smiley, and a whole bunch of guys like, you know, with names like that, that, uh, love to gamble. And, uh, I stayed there for about a year in 1969 and that was quite, quite boring, <laughs> Not really. but I was into, uh, you know, uh, uh, snooker and played a bit of pool, but, uh, I gambled a lot and the, you know, the gambling was the big thing and, and, um, um, I, I had a lot of fun down there and, uh, you know, we traveled, we actually followed, uh, uh, we followed people that, uh, one, one guy lost about $30,000 in about a month and uh, he lost it in various cities going across that, you know, from say, uh, San Francisco to Los Angeles, uh, to Phoenix, to Albuquerque, New Mexico, El Paso, Texas, and we were always one day behind this guy, <laughs> and we never did actually catch him. But you know, to, uh, to gamble with him. But I've, yeah, I gambled a lot. I really enjoyed it. There was a um, uh, just a style of life that I really enjoyed: late night driving, and uh, you know, on to the next town, uh, going to a town, and uh, stopping at a phone booth, and uh, um, going to the billiard pages uh, in the phone book. And seeing where the pool rooms uh, uh, were, and after a while, I was starting to notice that all of the building room pages were all torn out. There was somebody always ahead of me. <laughs> Probably yeah. that guy you were trying to keep up with. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. The classic image of that cliff is of basically playing to survive from day to day, and you needed to win to basically keep the show on the road. So, was that what it was like for you? Uh, yeah, I was. Um, well. Uh, I was in a couple of situations where uh, I had to lose my money. Uh, the money that I won had to lose it back, and the, you know, just like a fellow would open up his uh, his uh, jacket. That was in well, one of the times was in Oakland, California, where there was a um, uh, uh, you know a few guys in there that didn't look all that great, like gold, a gold SWAT stickers on there, you know, chains on the you know with a gun in the you know open it up and the, and. Uh, so and sometimes then, you didn't want to take the money away. No, well, I had to. I had to lose their money back, and then the yeah. fellow that I was with, I'd, unbeknownst to me, he was carrying a gun, and he said, "Well, we're going to have to have to lose uh, some of our money back now." 
well, I didn't like that. So anyways, I got the, I had to look and the fellow open up the jacket and he's, you know, just, uh, he said that nobody's ever left here with our money or something like that. But anyways, yeah, and uh, places where like Thunder Bay, Ontario, really, really cold there. Uh, um, I remember um, uh, uh, I didn't have any money and I was playing a fellow for $5 and it was about 40 below zero. And uh, uh, the black was on its spot, and the cue ball was right behind it, and I uh, played it in the middle pocket, and uh, and I didn't hit it hard enough, so it stayed over the pocket. I got a, uh, well, like I didn't get beat up, but they sort of pushed me around a little bit, and then I had to stay in the police station that night just to uh, have a place to stay because otherwise I would have froze to death outside. So so that's pressure, but one thing's for sure: um, uh, if I had that shot again for the rest of my life. You know, I always hit it hard enough. (laughs) (laughs) So you came over to the UK in the 1970s to a very different world then, the professional scene, a world away from everything you've just described there. What was it like at that time? Because there were only a handful of players and not many tournaments to play in. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I probably, uh, when I, uh, John Spencer came over to Canada in 72, and um, I just asked him if he, he thought that I was good enough to turn professional. And I had some good days uh, playing them. We had uh, three si- six-day matches, uh, Calgary, Edmonton, uh, Vancouver, and I just won the North American Championship. So he put my name forward, and I guess I was the token Canadian. <laughs> but I was accepted right away, which was great, in 72. But I probably only played in about six tournaments before I came here because I was always barred. You know, they thought, well, because I didn't have a job, and uh, uh, they uh, they said that I was a professional of almost from 1970 until 73 when I was accepted uh, to be a professional. And then, of course, I came over here and I was uh, thrilled to bits. Ended up playing uh, Dennis Taylor, and we've been friends ever since that match. I was fortunate to win it nine to eight, and uh, uh, in 1973, uh, we've never had an argument. Uh, since, um, uh, which is not surprising. And, um, uh, but since I had only played in six tournaments, I, uh, uh, I just played uh, money snooker kind of a thing. I didn't care about the crowd. I mean, uh, you know, I just took my time, as uh, people all know. Hmm. And um, uh, so, you know, every, every match was a desperate uh, situation to a certain extent. Like, just like you said, there was only five or six tournaments a year and uh, uh, you know it's like a, you know it's like that thing it's not like money pool where where you'd say or snooker money snooker where the fellow would say uh, all right well let's play again you know it's always like somebody would tap you on the back and say well you'll get them next year kid you know so that's just the kind of thing it was it, it was it was difficult uh, sorry difficult to accept but the main thing was is that the cloths were a lot thicker the pockets were smaller it was very damp. The balls were uh, a lot heavier than what we used to play with, and this and that's when they just um, went to the super crystallites from the old old crystallites. And I really I just floundered for about a year, and then um, you know I got I finally got my game together. But like you said, there weren't that many tournaments. But uh, uh, when yeah I finally acclimatized once it went to theaters and where the the, the you know um, you know like the air was uh, you know it wasn't damp and and it was the same temperature throughout the building all night and day then 
I, I sort of blossomed a little bit in that sense. Well, you mentioned theatres. We're actually sitting in the Crucible doing this interview, and you were here when it all started in 1977. So what did people make of the Crucible and the game's new home when it all came here for the first time? Well, uh, yeah, we hadn't really played uh, in a... Th- I think we played in a... Uh, no, we probably hadn't played in a theatre before. Um, uh, Mike Watterson's uh, wife, Carol, came for a... A play here, and uh, and all of a sudden we were playing here the next year. But I remember watching uh, 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 when I really thought that it was fabulous. Uh, Doug Mountjoy and uh, and uh, Alex Higgins were playing, uh, and um, um, Mountjoy had just beaten, uh, or sorry, won the Masters uh, that January or something. But anyways, and that was the theater. But this was different. This was the World Championships. Uh, Doug Mountjoy playing Alex Higgins, and of course there was um, uh, well, it must have been packed out. I can't remember, and uh, it was uh, very, very thrilling, like to watch it, and and uh, you know the fact that it was really a true world championship, sort of you know amateurish, and it's uh, the you know the set itself was uh, you know uh, left there used a lot to be, a to be desired. Fence, didn't there between the two yeah. tables? Yeah. yeah, yeah, they almost didn't even need it there. You know, it would have been better, I think, if it was opened up. And now they've got well, they've got uh, if, you know twelve, fourteen tables just opened up. It doesn't bother anybody really. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was uh, a fantastic feeling to you know watch that match, and then eventually I get I get down to 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 uh, play, and, and uh, it really was heaven, you know, to seeing the stars and the uh, you know the um, roof. You know, or the ceiling of the crucible, and just the, you know, like the lighting and everything was really nice and uh, very professionally done, and uh, and and uh, it started like a long run with embassy. You warmed to the crucible very quickly, Cliff. You got to a final, and then in 1980, having lost that first final, you reached the final again. Now, going back to the start of that 1980 championship, I know it's a long time ago, but do you remember feeling going into it, yeah, I'm playing well, I have a good chance to win the world championship this year? Yeah, I remember, uh, I think I only said it to one person, I think um, I think I, uh, I said to one press fellow, I, I said, listen, I feel really good this year, and... Uh, I just felt uh, I felt really calm. I uh, I'd stopped I'd stopped smoking for uh, two weeks. wasn't You know, didn't have a a, a drink, and, and and I started playing, and I was just a mess. I was just a nervous mess. So uh, after I won a match, I I ended up having about you know five or six large drinks, and uh, and. And I felt terrible like the next day, and all of a sudden I, you know, I, you know, and I smoked another cigarette. I know it's terrible. Like now, it's just one of the worst things you can possibly do. But, but, and uh, you know, I played about two or three days later, and I just, I, I just, I just felt like I was, you know, you know, I was not used to that much commitment. I know, like I, you know, this is a subject that people go, oh my God, was it, you know? But that's just the way that it was then. I was 32, I guess, and. Uh, but um, I I felt I felt terrific. I I I could see myself um, I could see myself winning it. I I could see myself holding the trophy, and uh, and I did. But uh, of course, Alex and I didn't get along all that well, which made it made it all the better for me that I you know I I I really disliked playing friends of mine. I'm not saying that Alex wasn't a friend, but 
you know, trouble sort of followed us around. It was uh, just one of those things. But, you know, great player and, and stuff. But uh, I'm glad that we weren't talking at the time. And uh, it, uh, it, it made things easier to focus. And it turned into maybe the first great, close, crucible final. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it never seems to be brought up, of course, because they've had ones, you know, other ones that were closer. But, um, yeah, it was, I mean, basically, I in the last two frames, I well, I missed a, uh, I missed a brown ball to go ahead 17-15. And, uh, and uh, uh, Alice cleared up, uh, and then it was 16-all, so I went off to the washroom, and I was screaming at myself in my dressing room in the mirror until my face was purple, like, you know, come on, this is your chance, what are you doing? And uh, I came out and I made a one uh, a one nineteen. The black was safe, and I didn't uh, I cleared up and uh, I, uh, didn't pot the black till the end. And then in the last frame, uh, like two uh, two visits and didn't miss a ball in the last frame. But I sort of wish that that was, you know, that somebody would say that you know that that was a good finish because it was a great finish compared to the ones I've I've uh, seen. But also with Alex's, um, you know. Uh, his his wife brought a cake out uh, and showed uh, my wife the cake. I think it was 15 all or something, and it said, uh, um, a congratulations, Alex Higgins, world champion year of the hurricane, you know, to, and my wife was talking to her. Well, it, 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 you know, it just sort of like it all added up to be, a, you know, a, a good thing for me. And it just, uh, I, I, I really felt terrific. I really felt calm, and I'm just, uh, I've, I've felt that way obviously a few more times. But that was uh, something that really, uh, really uh, stood out. The world title for the first time going across the water to Canada. Thirty-two-year-old Cliff Thorburn, defeated by John Spencer in 1977 has fought his battles through Doug Mountjoy, Jim White, David Taylor, and now finally, the unpredictable Alex Hurricane Higgins to take the Embassy World Snooker Championship title, 1980. the last ball and then thinking about my father and uh, just that was a big moment and and then Barb came out and gave me a hug and uh, and then I realized like the next day uh, you know because I had a few friends over and they were they never made it back to their rooms that night they were you know like collapsed in doorways or whatever they couldn't they couldn't even open up their uh, uh uh, hotel room doors, but uh, but then I realized like the next day that you know it starts all over again. This is not something like where I go off into you know like some sort of you know comatose thing for a year and just relax and and people be dropping grapes into my mouth and uh, you know lying there. But uh, I realized that it was you know that it had to start all over again, and uh, uh, I I almost. Felt like staying in Canada. I I was sort of talked into coming uh, 
over here and living here. And I did for a couple of years, and it really didn't suit me. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have to do that, as I realized. And 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 um, it, it was just all new to me, just uh, the attention, which was okay, but eh, I didn't need it. You know, it didn't, uh, you know, it was no big thing for me. Whereas other people might have relished that, but uh, um, it's just that, you know, obviously I'd be traveling more, but, uh, yeah. hey, listen, don't feel sorry for me. I, you know, I mean, I've, you know, I've met so many wonderful people over here, and I met them then, and, and uh, but uh, I was really a Canadian true at heart, you know, so. And how big a thing was it in Canada, Cliff? Did you get much attention? Because you were the first non-British player ever to win the World Championship. And, of course, that's something nobody can ever take away from you. There have only been two since then. And I know in both Ireland with Ken Doherty and in Australia with Neil Robertson, it was a massive thing. So how big was it in Canada? Yeah, it was... uh, Well, it helped. Um, uh, I had a a month's... I I think about five weeks of commitments uh, and my uh, future wife was with me, Barb, over here. And uh, so I didn't actually get to go home and celebrate for five weeks or so. And then uh, there was about 150 people at the airport, and it was nice. It wasn't sort of the, you know, the smaller, you know, because I live in Toronto, it wasn't like the small town kind of a thing would, uh, where there was a parade, but anything like that. You know, it's like I would see the guys having a parade, and go, well, that's that's kind of nice. But uh, it, 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 snooker, although it's part of our culture over in, uh, in Canada, uh, it's just not not quite the same thing as what it is in in the UK but uh yeah it was very well received uh you know press uh pe- you know more people playing uh snooker rooms opening up yeah yeah it was uh, very good and you added to that by then going on 3 years later to become the first player ever to make a 147 at the crucible in many people's eyes you're perhaps even more remembered for that than for actually winning the championship I think it's hard for people who weren't around in those days to grasp just what a big deal it was because there had only ever been one on television at all prior to that. So I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, Cliff, but I'm going to ask you again. At what point of that frame against Terry Griffiths did you realise that history was potentially in the making? Yeah, it was uh, after, after about five or six reds and blacks uh you know it wasn't the prettiest one i say but uh, you know i think i i used the rest twice the long rest twice <laughs> and uh but um yeah about five or six reds uh uh gone i i was thinking about it but but actually i had a dream uh, i had a dream about two months before that that i actually made the 147 in the world championship i'm not really that big on dreams but uh, you know i've had a few good ones that came true but um, I just had a dream, and the shot was that I had a sort of, you know, the cue ball was high on the black, if people can sort of, you know, sense what I'm talking about here. And then I cut the black in, uh, the first black, and then the cue ball hit the hit the black ball cushion, jumped up in the air and went right in the middle of the reds and spread them all, because when I played my first shot, the reds, because of a couple of safety shots with Terry, the reds were spread all over the place. And, uh, and of course, you know, I fluked the first ball, and I felt... I felt terrible about that for about half a second, <laughs> and then you know, and then off I went. But I was I was calm at the at the end of that when I was shooting the black. I um, uh, I just wanted to make sure that the um, that the black never even touched the jaws of the pocket, and it went absolutely straight in. So that you know, I felt 
that confident about it, and I just felt terrific. And then, uh, and I saw Big uh, Bill Werbenick's head peeking around the corner there, and uh, and I, uh, yeah, the celebration after was uh, was terrific. Oh, good luck, mate. heard that you were at, I think it was a baseball game back home in Canada sometime later and suddenly the last few shots of your maximum appeared on, on the big screen in the stadium. Is that true? Yeah, my, um, yeah, my former manager, Daryl McCarroll, was the, uh, who tragically died in a hunting accident uh, one year later. My life was just, well, before that sort of turned it upside down. But he, his, uh, his company uh, also did the security for the Olympic Stadium in Montreal. And and uh, and my wife Barbara's family is from Montreal, so we ended up going down there, and uh, you know, lots of pictures taken. So then they ended up having the uh, the brown, blue, pink, and black, you know, put up on the you know the Megatron screen there, and uh, and that was nice. Yeah, well, well, that's one of the perks that come comes with it, of course. Yeah, that was a uh, you know, because I'm a big baseball fan, and uh, you know, I got to meet all the top players, and yeah, that was nice. That was a nice surprise, actually. So, yeah. You know the Olympic Stadium. That's uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So good, deal. good that you got that bit of attention, Cliff. But here in the UK, again, it's hard to explain to people who weren't around at that time just how big the stardom was for the top snooker players. Now I know you've said that wasn't something that meant anything to you, but you must have been very aware of it. That if you were one of the top four or five players, which you always were throughout that time, you were an absolutely huge star in the UK. Hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, the one, oh, uh, actually, going back to the question that you just said there, that, that you know, that the 147 was was a big deal, I'm, I'm just saying that um, um, Steve Davis had made one, mm. and that was for ITV, so the BBC wanted to, you know, like... They, Even the score. Yeah, they needed a 147, and, and, you know, so, I mean, I think that all, you know, the BBC crew were the happiest of anybody, <laughs> And you know the crew, you know, gave me some gold cufflinks and and stuff. It was really nice, you know, a nice uh, a nice tribute. Yeah, uh, but anyways, uh, yeah. So being a, a top five player over here was a was a big thing. It was a bit of a goldfish bowl. I'm just you know, like I was talking about previously. There's just uh, um, yeah, you could. Uh, be really happy about it or you you could you know uh, not like it. i mean i mean who wouldn't like it really i mean it was it was it was great but um i you know there was just uh, there's just something about it i you know i wanted to uh i didn't want to be over here living you know i wanted to be uh, back home living and uh so we were uh, my wife and uh, moved over here in eighty and uh, for two years, and then moved back for four years, and then um, uh, moved back for four years, and then uh, uh, our second son was born. So, uh, well, you know, I guess we might as well move back here again. And uh, this probably wasn't a good a good thing in my life. Like my manager had just passed away, and I've just, you know, I wanted to. I wanted to secure a foundation uh, back in Canada, and uh, things were going well. And then we, you know, our second son was born. He was born April the 29th in '86, and that, and uh, I was just going to play Steve, 
uh, Steve Davis in the semifinals of the World Championship. And this is this is how it was then. The, the um, uh, Bard was uh, in a hospital in Toronto, and uh, I was over here playing. I'm probably like the I'm sort of on a guilt trip. I'm, you know, I'm probably like the last athlete that's ever you know. You know, I continued on in a game and not sort of dropped everything and gone home for the birth of a child, you know, which was... Oh, there's still a few who yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but, well, it meant, you know, I, I mean, uh, it, yeah, it, it was just a, a strange kind of situation because uh, um, in uh, 83, uh, uh, there, there, you know, a Barb, um, just after I made the 147, mm. my... Uh, you know, uh, one of my best friends, uh, you know, said that Barb had lost the baby, you know, and uh, I mean, talk about purgatory, but she was in good hands with her, uh, her sister and her mom. And it was just, uh, I've, and, and, and I had like three close matches, which I didn't have to win anyways. They just, it just worked out to be, you know, that it worked out that way. And by the time you know, I got to Steve. He was playing well, and he would have beaten me anyways. But it was—I uh, know that somebody who was at uh, one, of, one of the announcers said that it was the worst final ever. Well, I mean, I, okay, well that's that's uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was uh, that was tough on top. Well, uh, that was just the you know the most horrible thing on mm -hmm. top of what uh, happened there. But you know, I decided to move back here. That was uh, like really like mistake number one was moving back here. I mean, I was 38 and I'm moving back here. And, uh, okay, and here for six years, you know, uh, Rocky Road there for a few uh, a few years, I guess. And then, uh, um, and then the second, uh, the, uh, the next biggest mistake was uh, moving back in 92 when I could have really established myself over here. So, it, you know, and then I went back, uh, we went back after six years, and of course I'd lost all that ground, you know, I'd lost the ground that I could have used to, you know, enhance my life and, and so on, but, uh, uh, you know, but the family was stuck together, and, uh, and uh, so, you know, so now I have a, uh, you know, as the world changes, uh, well, so that was his 36th birthday, my son, uh, youngest uh, son and now and now I have a have a uh, um, a transgender daughter so I think this is uh, so uh, it's just amazing how how things work in the world and a lot uh, happens over a long period of yes, time. yes it does yeah. It? yeah and yeah and and uh, so um, you know you you know, it's sort of like just, you know, like stay with your loved ones and, uh, you know, family is just, uh, is a so big and I just all the time, I, I'm not saying that I wasted it traveling, but um, uh, just, you know, I, just, I could have done a better job of sort of staying at home, at home, but it was, or staying in Canada, but it's sort of like I was the I mean, I've been treated very well over here, but, but it's sort of like I was the, you know, the as they say in Canada, you know, well, you know, uh, that Cliff's the, you know, the rushing hockey player, you know, he's... <laughs> what, in what way? Well, well, it's sort of like, you know, they, well, there's like a rushing hockey player is an outsider, you know, that, like with a different style, we can call it that, two different personality 
and um, and you know, so that's what we say about the Russian hockey players. Oh, you I know, but you. you know, yeah. it's not North American. We'll yeah. say it's not a slight in any means of the you know, but it, you know, it's just that you're you know you're not from the UK. It's it you know, it's not a big thing, but I, that's just the saying kind of it. You know, it's not a you know, it's not a slight at all. It's just. Uh, that that was, you know, I would rather have been the Canadian hockey player, and I just lived in Canada all the time. And uh, you know, I, I, you know, I made wonderful friends. I've got a wonderful life. Uh, uh, you know, so I've got a happy wife, happy life, and uh, two children and two uh, grandsons. And when you've been over here, Cliff, back in the day when you were one of the biggest stars, because as you've explained, you've divided your time between the two sides of the Atlantic. But when you were in Britain and on television all the time, and a very famous name. What extent did that reach? Was it a case that you couldn't go out in the street without being recognised? Was it that level of fame that you guys had? Um, it's, uh, there were some, yeah, there were some... Uh, well, I mean, you know, you get bothered by a few idiots. That's the only, that's the only bad thing that comes from that. I mean, I've... You know, try and sign every autograph, or tried to sign every autograph. I didn't sort of sneak out the back. Door. Well, I might have once or twice, maybe, but mm-hmm. very, very seldom. You know, uh, you know, like it was for whatever reason. But no, I, uh, you know, I love the admiration. I mean, I, like I said, I wish that it was you know in Canada. Like if I'd be walking down the street in Canada, and uh, you know, and a car went by, say in the summertime, and you know, and the horn would uh, beep. And then somebody would sort of, you know, uh, do the, you know, like the snooker, snooker action, motion, yeah. yeah, the snooker motion, and uh, you know, and then they roll down the uh, uh, the window, and I'd say, "You must be from the UK," and they'd say, "Yes, we are." <laughs> <laughs> so I was the, I was the greatest snooker player that nobody had seen, <laughs> you know, in Canada. But I liked I liked it there. But then, uh, you know, uh, contradicting that, I would, you know, have liked a bit more recognition in Canada. But that's just. Uh, you know, I, I'm just as I've gotten older. I, you know, I meet people I continually that say, "Oh well, I, you know, I know who you are, and I was a big fan of yours, and I didn't even, you know, and like they might have been hero sportsmen to myself that uh, I never had a chance to meet." So that's all, you know, that that's always a feel-good thing. But uh, uh, I'm a real uh, sports fan, and uh, always have been. I, you know, I followed a couple of uh, football teams over here, which I really can't tell you who they are because, uh, uh, you know, I travel on the trains. You know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I'm just kidding. But I've met, yeah, yeah, I met some great, uh, uh, some great athletes over here and uh, nice people. We've and, talked uh, about your memories, Cliff, at the Crucible and in the World Championship. But the venue and tournament that you owned back in the 1980s was Wembley and the Masters, and you had an amazing record there, winning it three times in four years. So what are your memories of those special days? Uh, well, uh, that was... Um, actually, I've got a good story about that. I, uh, the um, um, That was uh, the granddaddy of all tournaments. I felt like it was... Uh, I mean, the seats were all, like, first-class airline, uh, you know, seats, or business-class seats. Um uh, 2,900 people watching. Uh, of course, I played Alex there, and I played uh, Jimmy White a couple of times. Absolutely full to the, you know, the, to, you know, like uh, people couldn't get in or out almost, it seemed. And um, 
uh, you know, I know that everybody was rooting for Jimmy, but it was fair and it was, you know, it was just what an atmosphere. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of people. It's like there's that many people that the break had to be, had to be half an hour, you know, like to get people in and out, like the, after four frames. But, uh, and, and uh, it was such a, it seemed like it was like such a long walk to the table from your, uh, your seat. It just seemed to be that way. But yeah, I just loved it there. The, you know, uh, it was the only tournament that was in London, I think, at the time, except for maybe the World Team Championship might have been there. So. I think maybe it was down in Reading, which would be near enough to London. But yeah, yeah. They, yeah, but that was different. Yeah. Yeah. And Bournemouth later years, of course. Yeah, Reading. But yeah, I, I loved, I loved um, Wembley, you know, and what it stood for, and just a famous place and uh, a famous area. And uh, the sponsors at the time, it was, uh, they, they were really really first class but i yeah i love the i love the tournament i think the matches were uh the best of 11 or so uh, but you know they just seemed to be you know they suited me anyways and uh, and i had some good wins there i normally lived around london so it was uh, um home to me yeah but winning the three years out of four was uh, yeah a very nice feeling they uh you know, I, st I, st I still get reminded. Uh, thank you very much mm. for doing it. He takes the brown. Jimmy, of course, Four. must now know that time has come. Cliff looking forward to the gold trophy and a check for 45,000 pounds. Nine. <coughs> That's it. It was Canadian Cliff Forbin who became the master of Benson Hedges 86. I'd like to invite our winner to come forward and receive his cheque for £45,000 and the Benson Hedges Masters Trophy, Cliff Forbin. You were part of a Canadian triumvirate, as it were. You, Kirk Stevens, Bill Werbenick. You actually won the world team event that you referred to there once, mm. back in 1982, and then you were part of another Canadian team years later that won it again. Now, Bill, sadly, has long since passed away, but mm. do you ever hear from Kirk? Would you be in touch with him at all, or do you yeah, even know what he's up to? Yeah, well, uh, uh, Kirk, uh, Kirk's doing okay. He's living with a, a very nice young lady, and uh, and her her mother's in her 90s, I think, so they're, they're really... Uh, you know, um, uh, as far as the COVID thing uh, uh, went, they were, you know, it's almost like they didn't do anything for a couple of years. I mean, like, you know, she wasn't well and they had, you know, they just, you know, they're just taking care of each other. And uh, yeah, Kirk's doing okay. He's golfing and, and uh, but I haven't seen him in a couple of years just because of, you know, this situation. Mm. I, I very, very, uh, very difficult, you know, because he's a nice fella, and we and we had some great times together. I think people would love the idea of you and Kirk still being in touch. I think people would be delighted to actually hear that. And it wasn't just you guys; there were lots of Canadian players on the tour in those days. And then another era actually came through: Elaine Robidoux, who got to the semi-finals yeah. here; Jim White, kind yeah. of crossed both of those yeah, eras. Yeah, yeah. And then it all just dried up, and no Canadians were coming through. So yeah. what happened? Well, uh, first of all, uh, well, Bob Chaperone. Uh, of course, British yeah. Open winner, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bob's the last Canadian to won a major. That's like 30 years ago. Uh, I don't know what happened. I think Poole, uh, just because of everybody thought that they were going to be a Poole champion, and uh, there's so much parody in Poole that, uh, 
you know, anybody, uh, you know, that was a snooker player sort of had an advantage as far as numbers were concerned. They were, they were you know, anybody that turned pro was in the top, you know, 10% of, you know, anybody that played uh, snooker in Canada, you know, like the history of the Canadian game, they were all you know, um, right there at the top, unfortunately. Well, there's myself and Kirk and uh, Roby doing all that. And the Canadian women as well. We had some great women coming up uh, playing. But they just started playing pool, and that just sort of, you know, it fit the demographic. Snooker, there just weren't, I mean, snooker really went into a lapse uh, uh, just because people wanted to play pool. But um, I'm, yeah, and I was disappointed. I mean, I tried to play pool like a little bit and, uh, you know, was okay at it, but it's not it's not the game that snooker is, especially if you start playing snooker. So, uh um, uh, it's making a bit of a resurgence. It's, uh, it's just great that there's so many, uh, you know, there's so many um, tournaments are on TV or are being streamed. Uh, you know, even I get the, uh, you know, the app to get the, the you know, all of the championship, uh, uh, you know, balls that are hit in 17 days. I would get it, and and there's and there's thousands and thousands of people that watch it. Uh, uh, the people, um, a lot of uh, a lot of Asian, uh, uh, you know, a Chinese people playing snooker in Canada, and that sort of helped it. You know, uh, believe it or not, it helped. You know, it helped to generate the interest or keep the interest going in Canada. Thank God for that. And and and, but we don't have any uh, young players coming through. It's uh, I've just been made the Canadian. Well, um, a couple of years now, but the head coach in Canada and uh, and a head coach uh, and in charge of player development for the Pan American uh, Snooker Association. So uh, we have the same situation. Everybody's miles apart. We just have pockets, you know, and and uh, uh, nobody playing. And you know, outside of the main cities, the you know the snooker tables aren't there like they used to be. Uh, I've got some happy stories, but I'll I'll think of one. No, I'm just mm-hmm. kidding. But they're you know. But listen, if they're if they're playing with sticks and balls, uh, that you know, it's um, I think that we're going to have um, uh, people going back to snooker. Unfortunately, it, it, you know, and I said this quite a few years ago, is that just like the way that the game of snooker was going, um, uh, it's. Our representative that when snooker finally gets to the Olympics and 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 it will like I mean of course I was upset with breakdancing getting in instead of snooker but <laughs> maybe uh, you could take that up yeah that's another story yeah. well I, yeah it'd be good for my health uh, but um, once once that snooker does get in the Olympics that I don't think that anybody that's playing now in Canada uh, 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 will be represented. I, I think that whoever uh, represents Canada, say, in the Olympics in eight or ten years, uh, hasn't uh, started playing snooker yet. So, uh, on you know, looking at it that way, I you know, I can see a real positive thing happening there. That you know, just getting somebody brand new. I'm not saying that uh, nobody's capable, but I that that's where I think it's going. Well, that's encouraging to hear that you have that optimism. And just as we come to the end of this, Cliff, we think back to your heyday and the stars of that time who were huge names in this country and in other parts of the world as well. That was when the whole culture of snooker nicknames came along and obviously the hurricane and the whirlwind were the most famous ones. You were known as the grinder and that reflected your style of play. Nowadays, if you say to a player, oh, you're just a bit of a grinder, aren't you? They don't like it. 
But I think you reveled in that. You liked the fact that people knew you were this tough competitor and you were going to go out there and give it everything and that that was a good thing. Yeah, I, uh, well, I had to work, uh, I, I um, um, work at my game, I just, I wasn't a great potter, I always had trouble aiming, I did, I, I got this dominant left eye, and I just, it really, it just drove me crazy, I, uh, I really had trouble aiming, and uh, I just played to my strength, I mean, playing safe uh, in general really is easy, but I mean, if you're trying to get the cue ball to where the guys are putting it today, you know, blocking off one side of the table, not just getting it back down the table. I mean, that's sort of like an offensive safety shot. And uh, I wasn't very good at long potting. I did, I did finally sort it out, but um, uh, I found a way to win. And, uh, you know, don't think that it was fun doing it either because uh, you've got to have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of patience. And um, uh, I guess I was a bit of a slow starter. Might have been a little nervy when I started playing a match, but... Uh, uh, if you're a slow starter, you always have something uh, to fall back on. But I relished the four, you know, the four-all game, the, you know, the best at 25, 12-all. Uh, I I was almost born to, you know, to play in those games there, and 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 to grind in that situation is just not to leave your opponent one shot. Don't miss an easy shot. Just get the first opportunity, like to win the last game. And I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, but uh, uh, grinding's not so bad. I mean, now they now now if somebody grinds who's not really supposed to uh, uh, grind, it's sort of glamorous. Yeah. <laughs> but it's you know. But I mean, now that uh, you know the safety stuff that you know in the old days of you know what might have seemed like it was scientific research or something is you know now it's a prerequisite to. Uh, you know, like the Judd Trump and, uh, and well, Ronnie knows this, but Judd Trump, uh, you know, knows, and um, um, uh, Mark Williams, especially those two that were tremendous potters and still are, but they, you know, uh, well, especially Judd Trump, he knows the value of safety play now, and he knows why he's, you know, uh, uh, you know hasn't uh, won as many world championships as what, he might think he is, but he's getting better all the time and, and uh, um, an all-around game. And I was the other way. I wanted to get a, you know, like, I mean, I knew that I couldn't win. You can't just grind and win everything. But I knew that I couldn't win unless I I got my um, you know, long game together. And I did eventually, but, excuse me, but you've got to have a complete game. And all of those qualities helped you pull off one of the most remarkable comebacks in a final we've ever seen, Cliff. You can talk about the mid-80s and Alex Higgins coming from 7-0 down to win the UK final. Dennis Taylor, your great friend, coming from 8-0 down to win a final here. But you pulled off perhaps an even more unlikely win, if you recall, against Jimmy White in a big uh, ranking final. 7-0 down, and it was a much shorter final as well, so you had less time to turn it round. So what do you remember about that? Well, I remembered, um, uh, I think it was uh, three sessions, and uh, I was down, uh, I was down seven nothing uh, to Jimmy, and also uh, 74 to nothing, and I needed... About four snookers, Yeah, four it? snookers, yeah. I think, but and for some reason I just played it out. Well, no, I think he did something careless and knocked the ball off the table. And bang, I won that game. But just running the colors out, uh, you know, I'll never forget that because I got the snookers and then I ran the colors out. My God, it was, I was, 
I mean, my nose wasn't bleeding, but uh, you know, it it was awfully close to. It was so important that I did that, and not and not knowing. And then I made it seven four, eight four, and then it was eight all, and and then I won uh, thirteen eleven, I think. But the but the crux was that at seven nothing, uh, one of the um, uh, the um, uh, the tournament director was walking by uh, at the washroom, I think, and I just. I had just taken a break, and uh, he said, uh, uh, "He said, well, I don't know what we're going to do for the last session, you know, because it's not going to get that far." Well, what you overheard that being yeah, said, yeah. 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 Wow. So, uh, yeah, so that was good. And Jimmy took it well, and then, and then Jimmy, uh, four months later, uh, won a tournament against me where he needed the snooker. So the mercantile, and, yeah. yeah, in the final frame, he yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then I. And then I beat him at Wembley. So we had a nice little, uh, you know, Jimmy's my favorite opponent that I ever played because he didn't try and, uh, you know, he just played his game. And uh, he didn't, uh, I heard him say one time uh, that, uh, you know, if if uh, people thought that I was boring to play, you know, you should play him. But, uh, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, those, uh, those were good times. And, uh, you know, I had a lot more fire in my heart then, I think, at that time. I was 37 or so or somewhere around there 38 it was uh, that that's probably my peak was you know seven years after i won the championship but uh but uh, steve davis was around stopping everyone's ambitions but mm. you did achieve a lot of your own cliff and we're sitting here in the crucible as i say and people talk about how long we'll be here it's getting close to 50 years now but however long we're here and i for one certainly hope it's a very long time you will always be talked about because mm. another overseas player could come along and win it 10 times but you would always be the first no matter how many maximums are made here, you mm. will, for all time, be the first. So as long as snooker is being played, and particularly while it's here, your name will be remembered forever. And that's a pretty great thing, isn't it? Well, uh, it's wonderful. I mean, I'm constantly reminded by other people. I, I, um, I'm you know, especially happy uh, today that um, you've done your homework. <laughs> I liked your line of questioning. And, oh, thank uh, you. Yeah, it's been good, but uh, yeah, I'm uh, well. I'm you know, I, it's thanks uh, to people like yourself too that have uh, helped me, and uh, you know, people that ask me for my autograph and um, uh, you know, or point at me. Yeah, it's great. I, I mean, I just still I love I love walking around Sheffield more than any other place in the world. I guess I can say that. Well, you were one of the very biggest names in the game when I started to fall in love with the game back in the 1980s, Cliff. So it's been wonderful to have this opportunity to sit down and share these memories with you today. And we wish you all the very best for whatever lies ahead for you. Thank you very much. I'll I'll be um, um, working hard to have a stress-free life right now. That's what we all want, isn't it? Thanks, Cliff. Thanks for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. The champion of the world, Mr. Cliff Thorburn. (laughs) 